0: We come tonight in our study of the book of Exodus to Exodus chapter 9, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, we'll be reading the entirety of this chapter together this evening. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask His blessing on our time together. Our great God and King, we give You thanks for the wonder of Your power and Your majesty displayed even in our own time as we look at the wonder of creation and the way in which You rule over all things in history for all time. And in particular, as we look this evening at these wonderful narratives preserved in the pages of Scripture for us, and we see Your might on display for a watching world, we see even the ramifications of such things uh, throughout redemptive history. And we see so clearly here the gospel proclaims in foreshadowing form, looking ahead to the work of our Savior who has brought us from slavery to freedom, from death to life, from darkness into light. And we pray for the illuminating work of Your Spirit even this night to grow in our understanding, fear, awe, and wonder before You, and that our hearts, lives, would respond in worship and adoration because of what you have done to save us in the sending of your Son, in whose precious name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing… All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh says, Behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh, and shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt." and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses." Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt." And Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field, Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. And there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the, Lord, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in bud. But the wheats and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. The word of our God. You may be seated. Now, it's been a few weeks since we have looked together at the plague narratives from the book of Exodus. And though these are familiar scenes to us, And we know the outcome, ultimately, of these ten plagues poured out upon Egypt. In other words, we know that these plagues will lead to the release of Israel from captivity. I think it's important to try to envision what it may have been like to be numbered among the people of God and to experience firsthand the sight, the wonder, and the miraculous provision of God's protecting hands over the people of God as He redeemed them." And there's so much for us to learn in these narratives about the nature of God, His power, His control, His authority, that there are no rivals in all of existence. We talk about the contest between the Lord and the gods of Egypt, but it really is no contest at all, is it? It's the one true and living God versus a fabrication, a creation of man in his own mind, gods that do not even exist because the Lord is in a category unto Himself. And through all of this, it is important to be mindful that the Lord is with His covenant people. He is there with them, present in the midst of hardships, just as He is present with us in the midst of our own sufferings. Now, while we don't know how long it takes for all of these 10 plagues to be poured out upon the land of Egypt, even among the most conservative biblical scholars, estimates are that it could have been up to a year or more from the time that Moses and Aaron first appeared to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 5 until the time that the 10th plague came in Exodus chapter 12 with the death of the firstborn. And the point there is simply this that while victory is guaranteed, while release from captivity is a certainty, there is still hardship, there is still suffering, and sorrows to be endured while the people of God await the final deliverance from the Lord. And I think this is such an important lesson for us to learn, even in the Christian life, that though we are redeemed in Christ Jesus… And though we have a heavenly inheritance awaiting us in Christ, and we know that He will return, we are still called to endure much hardship, suffering, and sorrow. But when He comes, all will be gone in an instant. We still wait, and yet His powerful arm will deliver on that final day." And so, these are important theological truths, you see, that the plague narratives help to cultivate within our own lives. And so, let's seek to do just that as we look first this evening at the fifth plague. And that's our first point tonight, the fifth plague, pestilence upon the livestock. And we see this in verses 1 through 7. Now, as the scene begins, we see Moses walking in obedience to the word of the Lord, That is a theme that we see over and again throughout these narratives. The Lord speaks, and Moses responds in obedience, and so we should never take for granted the call before each one of us to walk in a similar manner, obediently and submissively before His Word. And so Moses goes and he speaks just what the Lord tells him. He appears to Pharaoh now for the fourth time, pronouncing really the same message that he has said before. Remember, God's Word does not change. No amount of hardness of heart, stubbornness, or resistance on the part of mankind will keep God from accomplishing His purposes and fulfilling His Word. And though Pharaoh and the Egyptians deserve to be completely decimated for their rebellion against the Lord, notice that they are given every opportunity to repent, Even here, there is this warning given, if you do not let them go, then there will be a severe plague upon the livestock. To refuse God's Word, to reject a Word which is so clear, will only result in destruction. Now Pharaoh presumes not only control of what happens in the land, but he presumes some sort of ownership over everything in the land, including the children of Israel, but they belong to the Lord. They are His possession for Him to do with as He pleases, and He will be the one to redeem. And notice in verse 3 that this particular plague will be severe, or it will be a heavy plague. And this is a play on words that we've seen before in these plagues. Pharaoh's heart you'll recall, has been weighed by the Lord, and it has been found wanting. It has been found heavy in wickedness and rebellion against God. And so now the Lord will respond, bringing heavy judgment, not only upon Pharaoh, but upon the land, for He represents the people in their wickedness against God. Michael Barrett, in his wonderful book on the book of Exodus, writes, I put a note here on page 98, So, if you get the book, page 98, the Lord provided opportunity after opportunity for Pharaoh to surrender his will to the Lord's, but each refusal hardened his heart a bit more. His heart remained insensitive because he did what he wanted to do. And this is true of every human heart, isn't it? We can find any reason to do that which we want to do, and we will indulge our selfish desires unless the Lord in His grace intervenes. That is our only hope. Now, whatever affliction this was, it seems to take the form of a contagious disease that spreads among the animals of the people of Egypt while those among Israel are not affected. This is an attack upon beasts that would have been used in pagan sacrifices. This is an attack upon the assets, the possessions of the Egyptians, further undermining their presumption of economic stability. And of course, it is an attack upon their food source as well. Now, you might recall that every plague that is poured out upon Egypt conveys some theological message with it. These are not mere displays of raw power on the part of God, but they are direct attacks upon the pantheon of Egyptian gods, showing these false gods over and again to be impotent, to be powerless before the Lord. And so this plague becomes particularly heavy in that it is the first one that involves death. Now, it could be that some died as a byproduct of the prior four plagues, but most of them were mainly inconveniences to daily life. This is the first plague you see that has death at its very center. And for the Egyptians, bull cults would have been prevalent among their worship. The bull would be a figure of power and fertility actual bulls, not even just images of bulls, but actual bulls themselves may have been worshiped as embodiments of Egyptian gods. Now, while this might seem strange to us, this was attractive to the children of Israel who may have engaged in such worship while they were living in the land of Egypt. And we know later, of course, in Exodus chapter 32, that Aaron creates, forges that golden calf that the people of Israel bow down and worship. And notice also that there is this explicit distinction that is being made here between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. We see that in verse 5. And this was a distinction that was made clear back in chapter 8, verse 23, with the coming of the plague of flies. But once again, Israel is set apart. They are spared this act of divine judgment and they are blessed by the Lord their God, not because of something that they have done, not because of something within them, but because they have been recipients of his kindness and preserving hands and favor. And then the Lord sets the time when this plague shall occur it will come tomorrow. Further indication of his absolute sovereignty over all of the created order. Liberal scholars have bent over backwards trying to find a causal connection from one plague to the next. We don't see such a thing in the coming of these plagues because it is from the hand of the Lord. He is sovereign over all that He has made. And then the next day, just as the Lord has said, the devastation of the plague comes and all of Egypt is affected. And we'll talk about this in the moment when we get to the seventh plague of hail, which falls and kills some of the livestock. And so, when we read here that all of the livestock died, we can simply understand this all, not as a universal all, but all representing all sorts of livestock that were mentioned previously in the text, or all among every person, that none are exempt that it affects every strata within Egyptian society. But the main thing for us to notice here is this distinction that is being made between Egypt and Israel. Just as upon that final day when our Lord appears, there will be that definitive, once-for-all distinction, separation between those who are in union with Christ and who will be vindicated in Him, versus those who will receive His just judgment, for they have rejected the free offer of the gospel, and bring such condemnation upon themselves." And I think there's one final thing to note here about this fifth plague, and that is the sending of Pharaoh that we see there in verse 7. Look there again. All the while, you see, God's word has been over and again, send out my people that they may worship me. And though Pharaoh refuses to send out Israel, notice here that he sends out some within his court to go and investigate whether there really is this true distinction between Israel and Egypt. He sends out representatives to see if, in fact, Israel is immune from this plague. And so, clearly, Pharaoh has the ability to send out the children of Israel. He just lacks the desire to do that what he is told to do. He has no intention of submitting to any authority outside of his own perceived authority. And so, Pharaoh desperately wants to maintain the illusion of control and authority. He wants to investigate for himself whether the land of Goshen is truly immune and whether God's Word is true or not. And isn't this a description of the hearts of contemporary man? Perhaps you've talked with others who claim that they are investigating the claims of the Christian faith, but it's an investigation that's upon their own terms in which they will interpret data according to their own criteria. And they convince themselves that they are being neutral in their observations, but all the skeptic does is look at what he wants to see and convinces himself in his own conscience that he has legitimate reasons for dismissing the claims of the Christian faith. Because it is not a matter of the intellect alone, but a matter of the heart. He wants to live for himself and he does not wish to bow to any authority outside of the self. And something I read recently, the author states, it's not about what is logical, it's about what we want. The mind of our heart will find a way to excuse what we want. No matter how selfish or destructive it is, when the heart is fixated, it will not listen even to common sense. And that brings us to our second point this evening, which is the sixth plague boils upon the people. And we see this in verses 8 through 12. Now, remember, the plagues can be categorized, there are literary clues for this, into three sets of three, culminating with the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn. And so if we compare that first set of plagues with this second set that we move into now, remember the third plague was Aaron taking his staff, striking the dust of the ground, and the dust turning into gnats. And remember, that plague justly came upon Egypt without the formula of Moses and Aaron coming to Pharaoh to warn him. Now, similarly, the sixth plague, which concludes the second triad, comes without warning. And similarly, it is dust or ash taken from the kiln, which turns to painful boils upon the flesh. Now, it could be that the soot comes from the very location of the kiln that the Egyptians are u- or the Israelites are using to make the quota of bricks for the Egyptians. For Israel… The furnace, of course, is that symbol of oppression as they were forced to make the bricks. But now the Lord turns the tables upon the Egyptians, using that source as a means of inflicting judgment upon Egypt. And notice that Moses and Aaron are to perform this act right in the face of Pharaoh as an act of defiance against his perceived power and authority, and to testify to the power of God. Once again, this is not some natural progression from one plague to the next, but it is clear judgment from the Lord. And where the previous plague brought death upon the livestock, now the Egyptians are being attacked in their very flesh, their lives are being threatened as the plagues become closer to the destruction of their own life. Now, the boils upon their flesh would have been painful, undoubtedly contagious, covering their entire bodies, which should wake them up to the power of God and help them realize that their lives are in jeopardy. Now, it's interesting later in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, Israel is given a number of warnings as to what will happen if they refuse to obey the Word of God. And there in verse 27 of Deuteronomy 28, we read, the Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. And so, here in Deuteronomy 28, we have a description of what Egypt experienced in the agony of boils, namely that there was nothing that they could do on their own to remove these painful sores. Now, let's think here. Let's think of our formula. If it's true that the plagues that are poured out upon the Egyptians are not arbitrary in nature… Well, which gods among the Egyptian pantheon are being attacked? There were gods, as you could imagine, that were related to health and well-being, gods who were sought when illness or disease would have come. We would know nothing about worshiping such things, would we? Just think of how tempting it is to put our own hope in the achievement of medical science. And thinking about the pandemic that we are all living through, someone I read recently wrote this, to view this illness, this present illness that is in our society as purely a scientific problem is reductive. This is not just a medical event, but this is a theological event revealing what we really think of God and what we expect Him to do. And even as believers, we can be taken captive to scientism which is an ideological view that given enough time, science will be able to solve all of life's problems. It's a framework of superstition. Now we can be grateful for God's providence in scientific discovery, but science and medicine as an object of faith will prove to be utterly destructive and futile, just as it was for Egypt. I think another important theological theme that we see developed throughout these plague narratives, and we see it clearly here in this plague, is the posture related to one's power. Now, remember, the pharaoh presumes to be divine and sovereign. He believes that he is the one who can determine who will or will not stand in his presence. On the other hand, we know that the Lord is the sovereign king he alone can make that determination as to who can and cannot stand before him. And that's made clear here in verse 11, where we read that the magicians cannot stand any longer before Moses. They are more impotent than ever. They cannot rid the land of the disease, and of course, they cannot protect themselves. And so, the magicians who function as the mediators on behalf of Pharaoh are defeated, and they can no longer stand before the mediator of the Lord. And if diseased, they would have been claimed ritualistically unclean and unable to perform those religious rites. And in fact, this is the last that we read of the magicians in the plague narratives. While Moses and Aaron continue to stand before Pharaoh, both in defiance of his perceived authority and they stand boldly as the Lord's representatives. Philip Ryken writes that their defeat was so complete, their humiliation so absolute that the book of Exodus never mentions them again." And that brings us to our third point this evening, which is the seventh plague that we read about in verses 13 through 35, hail upon the land. And so if we stick with this formula again with these three sets of triads, as we come to the seventh plague, we come to the last of those triads, and things really begin to heat up as Moses appears to Pharaoh once again. In the early morning hours, that represents or that mirrors the pattern we saw in verses in the first through the fourth plagues, or the first and fourth plagues. And here we find the longest warning that is offered to the Pharaoh. Verse 14 reads, I will send all my plagues on you yourself, on your servants, on your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all of the earth. And so, this statement here is a declaration not only of this plague of hail that is about to be poured out upon them, but it is a warning that things are coming to a head, and God's name will be exalted. So, while things will continue to escalate, God is showing Himself in the midst of this to still be merciful. Verse 15… I could have struck you and your people down. I could have cut you off from the earth. God had every right to do so. He would have been just in doing so. But in fact, I have raised you up to show my power that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Judgment is justly deserved, but the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and even his patience displayed with Egypt, is to bring glory to his name. And in fact, we read there in verse 20, and we'll come back to this more in a moment, but in fact, some begin to turn from idolatry, perhaps, to true faith. Some of the Egyptians begin to fear the word of the Lord. If it is held out before them either the word of Pharaoh or the word of the Lord, which contradict one another they begin to reject the Pharaoh's word and fear God. Now, the issue all along has been one of sovereignty. Who has power? Who has authority? Who has might? God is king. Pharaoh is only left standing because God has allowed him to live. And the reason that his life is preserved is that the Lord would be worshiped and glorified. And yet Pharaoh continues to play God and exalt himself against the Holy One. How arrogant, how presumptuous we are when we believe that we can determine life on our own. When we exalt ourselves as though we can determine and distinguish truth from error. And once again, the gods of Egypt are shown to be impotent against the living God. Part of the false worship of the Egyptians would have been to worship the gods of nature, the gods of the sky and and the rain. They are being mocked and destroyed by the Lord. And verse 19 is this stark warning. Anything that is not under shelter will die. Pharaoh has no interest in sending Israel out from slavery, but the word of the Lord is to be feared and obeyed. Send your livestock to shelter, your servants in from the fields, for if they remain, they will perish. Judgment is coming, and yet shelter from the wrath of God is possible. This is a foretaste of the tenth plague, isn't it? When the death of the firstborn comes, shelter can be found if the word of the Lord is heeded. And if you look to His provision of a substitute, the proper response is to believe God's Word, to fear the Lord, and to obey. And while again, some there in verse 20 do, most did not pay attention to the Lord. Livestock and servants remain in the fields, and the wrath of God is poured out. Thunder And lightning and hail, as had never been seen in all of the land of Egypt, falls. And it is catastrophic. Every person and beast without shelter is killed. Crops are destroyed. And yet again, the land of Goshen, where the Israelites dwell, is immune. They are safe under the protecting hand of God. And the response of Pharaoh this time is interesting You may have noticed there in verse 27 that he speaks of his sin. He confesses that the Lord is right and that he and the people whom he represents are wrong. But is this true repentance or is this only sorrow because of the consequences? Just think of how tempting it is in your own life to feign sorrow only because your sin has been exposed, and there's nowhere else to hide, no more excuses to be made. And typically, time reveals the true nature of the heart. And we know, of course, as the narrative progresses, that Pharaoh's heart is not truly repentant. And even Moses knows that in his dialogue with the Pharaoh. He knows that Pharaoh is not repentant. One, because God told him that, but perhaps there is something that he himself perceives even in his conversation with Pharaoh at this point. Verse 27, this time I have sinned. Moses might be thinking to himself, okay, well, what about every other time prior to this? There is the appearance of humility, but once that immediate danger subsides, the true nature of his heart is revealed once again. And Moses knows that Pharaoh does not truly fear the Lord. I love how our shorter catechism speaks of the grace of repentance. In an answering the question, what is true repentance? It responds that repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin, Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's a wonderful description of what true as opposed to false repentance looks like. Not only a disdain for that sin, but a love for the Lord that moves the heart volitionally to turn from that wickedness and walk in obedience to the Lord. This is a big difference between just wanting God to leave you alone versus a change of heart producing a change of life. And as devastating as this plague was upon the land, we read this parenthetical comment, this sidebar in verse 31, not only about some of the destruction that falls upon the land, but also some of the crops that were preserved. Here the Lord shows His general kindness and benevolence toward that which He has made. He allows Egypt to survive, that they may have opportunity to humble themselves before Him. And yet as they continue and choose hardness of heart, we'll see next time that all this does is leave food for the swarms of locusts to consume. The land continues to be decimated under the powerful arm of the Lord. and As we close chapter 9 here in our look at this text tonight, let's keep in mind some of the theological lessons that we learn, not only here from chapter 9, but throughout the plague narratives. First we learn of the foolishness of idolatry and the consequences of rebellion. I think it's worth using this narrative as a mirror upon your own heart, asking yourself, what are the predominant characteristics of my own heart? Do I have an understanding and submissive heart which is evident in love for God and a desire for His Word of truth to bear fruit in my life? Do I long to grow in my affection for Him and in my desire to serve Him Am I longing to know him more? Or is the heart of Pharaoh a more accurate description of your own heart? Hard, and proud, and arrogant, blind, entitled, even dismissive of the call to repentance. May we all humble ourselves before the living God, and ask Him again and again to soften the natural hardness of the heart that resides within. And I think a second application from the text is I think it's always profitable for us to draw comfort from the Lord's salvation, from His deliverance of His people from bondage. Through divine power alone can we be free from captivity to sin, and bondage to that sin nature, and it is Christ alone who has saved us. And now everyone who heeds the Word of God, who listens to His voice, who trusts in the work of Christ upon the cross, is delivered from sin and from guilt, is delivered from condemnation and from death. And our comfort is that this deliverance comes in an instant. As soon as we rest in Christ alone for salvation, we can have this true and lasting hope as our possession, as eternal life is ours even now. And the only way to stand, to stand on that final day, is to stand confidently in the righteous robes of Christ that are received by faith alone. Without that, there is no ground upon which we might stand the wrath of God to come. And one final thought is to see the call to universal praise. Remember, the purpose for which God is delivering His people is that they might worship Him. And the display of God's power serves to magnify His name in all of the earth, calling people to praise His name. And we might wonder to ourselves, how is a display of God's wrath evangelistic in nature? Well, think of it like this. As bad as the plagues were upon Egypt… They were not what they could be. They are not what they should be. And they are not what they will be on that final day for those who reject the hope of the gospel. Believe His Word. Respond in humility. Receive His grace. And worship. Worship with your entire life. The display of His power demands a response. And so may our response always be one of humble trust and rest in Christ alone and a zeal for His honor and His glory. Amen.